Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today, we've brought on another guest. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback from our guests. Adam and I, I think we know some things about golf, right? We know a few things. We don't know everything. So that's why we're trying to bring people on with different perspectives, different expertise. So today, we've got Lou Stagner. Lou, thanks for joining us. Hey, gentlemen, how you doing? Pleased to have you on. I love I love my numbers. So yeah, yeah, it's it's good to, good to be here chatting with you guys, Adam. I know we've had you on our pod, John. We're gonna have to get yeah. you on at some. We'll point. have yes. to slowly slowly get all of your your podcast members <laughs> over. <laughs> Perfect. So the reason we wanted to Lou is a really talented guy with stats. Um, I think we're going to try and make this episode about managing all of your expectations. As we've discussed on many other shows, we believe golfers are way too hard on themselves. I know I've been way too hard on myself. Adam's admitted to this <laughs> as well. And Lou has a has a great talent for kind of putting the game in perspective. So, he's one of the best Twitter follows. You can, what are you, at Lou Stagner on Twitter, Lou? Yep. Yep, that is correct. And he is one third of the Hack It Out golf podcast. So, we would love to have Scott Fawcett and your buddy Mark Crossfield on here as well. But you're, you're number one. You're the first guy on. So, welcome. Awesome. What do I win for that? Do I win a prize? You get to talk to us for like about an hour probably. That's right, what you get. Good. Um, so, why, That's why don't you give – I mean, not everyone lives on Twitter or maybe some people don't know you. So, why don't you give us uh, a quick intro, a little background on yourself? Yeah, sure. So, I, I really kind of fell into doing uh, golf stats and analytics the way that I'm doing them now. I've, I have a background uh, in analytics. I was working in analytics before they called it that in corporate America. I, I still have a day job in corporate America, working for a company based out of Philadelphia, running their analytics team. And a few years ago, I started to uh, dabble a little bit more in analytics for tour pros. It's something that I've always, uh, I've always been involved in in one level of or another. Uh, for myself, initially, I was never at your level, John. I know you've been tearing it up lately, but I, I always kept a lot of stats for myself. So I've always been really involved in under, trying to understand the game from a numbers perspective. And that sort of morphed over into starting to look at it at the tour level. I became pretty interested in trying to understand a couple of things as I was trying to get better. Uh, and I out of uh, out of the blue, I decided, you know, I'm going to start a blog and I'm going to start writing articles about golf stats. And, and I told my wife that and she kind of laughed at me and said, you're so much <laughs> fun at parties. Like, <laughs> like, Why do I ever take you out of the house? And so I started it in 2018 and I put a couple of uh, blog posts out there and I honestly didn't think anybody would read them. I didn't think anybody would care. Um, I engaged with a couple of people on Twitter and uh, for somehow it, it went a miniature viral and I got a number of people reading, reaching out. And, and then I eventually met Scott Fawcett and, um, and then kind of the rest is history from there. So that's, that's the quick two minute overview. Well, your following has grown really rapidly, hasn't it? How many followers you got on Twitter now? 30, 
5,000 maybe, something like that. And that's more than us combined. That's man. more than us. And you know, and as we know, the amount of Twitter followers you have is how good you are at life. So it is. It pretty much is. Kudos to like, you. Like, and I was <laughs> never, at, I was not a social media person before I, I started, before I ventured into Twitter. I bet you're less of one now after dealing uh, with everybody. Yeah, it's interesting at times. Yeah, I, I've I've gone through a few of your tweets recently, and you know stuff that I'm like, oh, that's just that's brilliant. And then I go through it, and there's there's just a bunch of hate comments in there. I'm like, you know what? I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> and yeah, actually, twi- yeah. Twitter is one of the nicest platforms, at least in the in the ones that I'm on. Twitter and Instagram really nice. Facebook, oh, I would not like to meet some of the people on Facebook. Yeah, it's, you know, for the they. most part, it's great. I've met some amazing people through this whole experience when I started. I have a Facebook account. I go on it legitimately like once a year. I don't do anything else on social media until I started doing this. And and so I had this Twitter account. I created it. I went on it once or twice and it sat dormant for a couple of years. Um, And then when I started tweeting out golf information, I legitimately had like three or four followers. I always joke about it. And it was like my wife, my mom, and a couple of Russian bots followed me. (laughs) And very quickly, it went from three or four people and it was a few thousand and, and then it's grown from there. And, you know, at times it can be, there's some people out there that are less than nice. Um, I keep my direct messages open so I can hear from people. And I've met some amazing people and have had some great conversations because of that. But I do occasionally get uh, a little bit of nasty messages in my inbox. Um, I kind of ignore those and block those people and and they go away. But overall, it's been a great experience. So I've enjoyed it. Well, I noticed your Twitter account probably almost immediately, and it certainly helped me. And I think one of the reasons people have gotten into your analysis of certain stats is that you're you're framing golf in a way that I think is super unique in a way that, you know, there's a few other people doing it out there. I'd put you certainly amongst the top statisticians out there because you're allowing people to take a look at different parts of the game and be like, oh, you know. Golf isn't that uh, hard. <laughs> you don't have to be that perfect. So uh, I think that's what we're going to try and do in this episode. I know you and me were exchanging some messages throughout the week. And I'm just going to put a caveat in here for Lou. Lou has put out like literally, I don't know, is it thousands of different oh, yeah, so <laughs> stats many, at this yeah. point? It, it's so many. And we're, we're going to try – what we're going to try and do in this episode is go through different parts of the game. Um, I think we'll we'll start with putting, and and Lou's going to try and give some of his maybe greatest hits, and give you all some perspective. A lot of it's going to be professional statistics. Maybe we'll get some other ones, but um, you know, Lou's going to kind of hopefully work his magic a little bit, and, and we'll have a interesting conversation here. So if, if we put you on the spot with something you can't remember or you have <laughs> to look up, just let everyone know. We could edit out the waiting time and we'll go from there. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. And my my memory is is horrific. So we're going to be pausing quite a bit for me to look everything up. <laughs> I'll just warn you in advance. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll make it work. So while we start with putting, you sent out a tweet today. It was about Brad Faxon, which many uh, believe is one of the greatest putters of all time on the PGA Tour. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what was interesting is is that from 10 feet, I believe his make rate was about 43 to 44%. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it was right in there. Yeah, that's right. Which if you pulled aside like a normal recreational golfer and you said, oh, 
yeah, this guy's going to make 40% of his 10 foot putts today. What do you think of that? And you're like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. Like put, put, put that into perspective historically and like what you, let's start there. Like how good is that? Um, that's pretty solid from 10 feet. It's, it's about 38% roughly. I mean, there's, he is a phenomenal putter. I'll just lead off with that. I wish we had stats from pre 2004. That is when shot link started. So we only have 2004 and after, and uh, I haven't looked at the updates recently, but he was second all time in strokes gained per putt. He was behind Denny McCarthy, who is a phenomenal putter. I haven't looked at that stat in probably two or three months. I don't know if, if Denny, they were within a few hundreds of, of, a, of a shot there. It was really, really tight. So I don't know if Denny maybe slipped back a little bit and Brad took over. But Brad is a phenomenal putter, incredible putter. Uh, from 10 feet, the tour average from exactly 10 feet is about 38%. From 10 feet to 10 feet, 11 inches, Brad was 43%. So that's, it's pretty solid. And the best putters on the PGA tour, they make up most of their strokes or they gain most of their strokes compared to bad putters inside of 12 feet. So like three feet to 12 feet roughly is where they gain most of their shots. Um, this one is it's ballpark. So the, if you look at, I think it was the top 10 putters, on the PGA Tour versus putters ranked between 150 and 160. I think there was about a, a 0.9 strokes different, uh, 0.9 strokes per round difference between those two. So the really good putters were almost a shot better than the really bad putters. And uh, about 0.6 of that was from, I think, two feet to, to 12 feet or three feet to 12 feet. It was basically short putts was two thirds of the difference between really good putters and really bad putters. So for us, for hacks like me, regular amateur golfers that are listening now, inside of 12 feet is a very, very important range. And there's a lot of opportunities to, to lower your index uh, just by working on that distance. It's a, it's a very critical uh, length. How much better are the pros, so an average pro compared to an average scratch player in putting? Um, I, I don't have that on the tip of my tongue, but I, I think it's like one and a half, two shots ish around. Don't quote me on that. I mean, there's definitely some differences. Um, scratch players are really good, but the typical tour pro is significantly better in every category. Are there some scratch players that um, can putt really well? Yes, there are. Absolutely. But uh, tour players are, are miles better in every single category. I think the index, I, I calculated index for tour pros, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And, and I think plus five and a half was like the typical index. And that's not adjusted for any tour conditions, right? That's just taking the, you know, the slope and the rating from whatever course they were playing at, realizing that it's probably pretty tricked up compared to what it would be for everyday players. You know, they have pins cut three, four from the edge on a large number of holes, uh, things are a little bit firmer, things are a little bit faster. Um, so it, it's, uh, if you wanted to be a tour pro and you're a really good player at your home club, I would say you legitimately at your home club probably need to be plus seven, plus eight on your home course for you to think about being able to make it out there. That's how much of the gap is. Yeah, I, I've been recording my strokes gained using my Brody's app recently and I shot um, 
In my last round, I shot one under around a pass uh, around a 7,100-yard course, or 7,200. And strokes gained put me as losing 1.3 shots against a pro. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yep. But gaining 6.3 against scratch. So basically, I played like a 6.3 plus handicap. Is is that right? So there was seven point six shots between those between a scratch yeah, and a pro. Uh, that's there? yeah, that's right about where it would be. It's probably between seven and, and eight shots, roughly, is about where it would end up falling. The gap is enormous. Scratch players, you know, John, you're you're a scratch. Are you a plus one? What are you? I've been between plus one and I think I'm point three right now. I've been like between plus one point five and point three for the last year or something like that. Yeah, John is a, a very elite amateur player. He's in the top one and a half percent, roughly, of of golfers out there, and he would get waxed by the worst tour pro out there. No offense. Oh, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't I mean, I say. It, it, it's it's almost a ri- ridiculous conversation because I'm not even one of the best players in my area. <laughs> I get I get smoked by right. you know plenty of, plenty of guys in competition um, who are not playing for real money anywhere. It, it's just miraculous how many great golfers there are out there, and there, there's always there's always someone better. Every time I show up to a tournament, I see someone, and I'm like, oh my, how did like someone shoot that score yeah there's always somebody better and that was kind of part part of the genesis of all of the manager expectations tweets that i I like to put out is just um one showing um, how good tour players are but two helping players understand that they're not as good as uh, we think they are based on what we see on television they are miles better Mm -hmm. than us uh, than any of us will ever be. But all we are seeing week in and week out on the weekend are the best players in the world playing their best golf. These guys are on a heater. We've all been on heaters. We've all played really well for a round or for a couple of rounds. And when you're looking at the players that are at the top of the leaderboard on the weekend and you're watching them, they are, they're just dialed in that week and they're playing incredibly well. And, and that's the exposure that a lot of us get, you know, one of the things that, that's fun to do when you uh, when you go to a tour event and you get to see tour players is uh, follow the guys that that you know are, are not you know John Rahm or Rory. You know, follow somebody that's 150th on the money list that shot 75 on day one, and you're going to see they're they're incredible. But you're going to you're not going to see every shot like we see on the weekend. That's for sure. No way. I have a question getting back to the putting. Broadly speaking, and you mentioned this, that, you know, the best putters on tour are significantly better inside of 12 feet, i.e. the putts where you actually have a chance of them going in, a decent chance. Um, What do you think, based on looking at all the stats you've seen, like, what defines a, a good putter to you? Is it you know, speed control, like keeping the ball close to the hole so you're not three-putting it as much. Obviously, you talked about inside of 12 feet. Like, what are the skills that stand out that show up in the stats? Like, why is someone better at putting than someone else? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, we could probably we could probably write a, you know, a dissertation on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's um, just do that in three seconds right. for us. Uh, Thanks. And there's there's a lot of factors I think you'd, you'd want to weave into there. And, and I'll answer it a couple of different ways. So I think for the amateur player, speed control is incredibly important. It is, it's vital. Um, and working on speed control is going to help you to putt better and it will 
lower your scoring average. You will make more putts with better speed control, either through making a few more because it's the ball is arriving at the hole with a good capture speed. It's not arriving at the hole where it might chase four or five feet by. And when it's moving that fast, you're, you're making the effective size of the hole a lot smaller. So when you have good capture speed, you're, you're going to make more putts if they hit the hole. And if you have good speed from lag distances, you're going to three putt less. Uh, and lag distances for amateur players is a whole lot closer than it is for tour players. And so for amateurs, I would say speed control is incredibly important. For tour pros, they all have pretty good speed control. Yeah, they, would, they wouldn't be there. Yeah, if they, didn't have. they all <laughs> have pretty remarkable speed control. And, you know, I'm of the opinion, like when I look at the data and I look at the best putters and I look at the worst putters, you it's 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 really challenging to to determine um, just from looking at speed control it's really challenging to determine who's the good putter and who's the bad putter and is there some slight differences there are but they're very they're not material is what i would what i would say and so i've always been of the opinion that green reading is a huge component at the tour level. Most of these guys are delivering the face with very tight tolerances when they putt. They're hitting their start lines really, really well, but some make more putts than others. And I think green reading plays a very large component in how many putts they're making, because I bet if you put most of them on like a Sam putt lab, their face tolerance is going to be really, really tight. um, And you would be challenged to, to find somebody that was really poor with face control. And, and I'm going to have Adam, you know, jump in here at some point as the, as the, the swing expert here and the actual golf pro, this is kind of what I derive from looking at the numbers is all things being equal. It's very challenging for me to tell who a good putter or a bad putter is just with speed control. And so I eliminate that. I eliminate face control issues because most of them are very, very good at, at hitting their start line and that kind of leaves green reading and, and that plays a, a big role, you know, inside of 12 feet, obviously. So that's kind of my back of the napkin dissertation on my thoughts on, on, uh, you know, putting. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to separate or isolate any one thing because they all have to go together. And in fact, even green reading, some of the best players that I've seen consciously, they don't read the putt very well. So, you know, I've, I've had a guy who was amazing strokes gain putting, yet whenever you asked him, where do you, how much do you see this breaking? He would say it was like a foot, whereas the reality is you put one of those rollers down and it was three foot. But, you know, he would step in and he would unconsciously compensate a little bit. He would pull or push it up the slope. I know many instructors look at that and they, they said, well, that's wrong what he's doing. He's compensating in air quotes, which is why we need another podcast on that one, John. But he was, he was a great putter and tried to isolate these different variables. So he tried to get better mechanics because, you know, his, his stroke was actually quite variable. You know, on a left to right, he would pull it. On a right to left, he would push it. So if he was a put on Sam Putt Lab, he would have quite high inconsistency. Um, and even his conscious reading, like I said, wasn't wasn't very good. And he actually learned how to read better, and it made it made him a worse player. Now I'm not going to say that for everybody. You know, I, I do agree with improving conscious reading skills, but we have to be very careful. I know a lot of the the top instructors, like uh, Phil Kenyon and John Graham, guys like that. You know, they they're aware of this kind of stuff. I think, and and uh, 
they know when to open up the the black box and when to leave it leave it closed i think i think the 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 takeaway i always get from listening to stats on putting and then getting to be a better putter myself gets back to and i want to give people some like actionable information on what to practice I was randomly watching the golf channel like 10 years ago. I don't watch it that much for instructional stuff, but I was watching Ryan Moore on there. It must have been like 10 years ago. And he's a phenomenal, yeah, he's, he's considered one of the great putters on the PGA Tour, has been his whole career. And they asked him how he practices putting and his answer kind of blew my mind. He said that he literally only spends time either in, inside of 10 feet or like outside of 30 feet. And I was like, what? Why? And then he explained it. He's like, I want to get better at the putts I have a chance of making, which are inside of 10 feet. And he's like, the rest of it's just speed control. I'm not worried, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, grinding over 15 footers trying to make all of them because I know they're just not going to go in. So I work on my lag putting a lot and I work on my short putting a lot. And the more and more I learn about putting, it obviously it's not a surprise that a great putter figured that out on his own. It, it kind of matches up with what we always hear about these stats is like you work on the distances you have a chance of making, which for most golfers or all golfers are inside of 10 feet. And then the rest of it is really for the amateur player, I think speed control and three putt avoidance, um, you know, that proximity to the hole from those longer distances. There's, there's also a lot of this out, outside of your control with putts yeah. outside 15. I mean, you know all the green imperfections and things like that. They're gonna they're gonna affect whether you can hold it. I know that was the thing that I got from reading Peltz's putting bible. You know, it's just how random putts can be. And uh, yeah, so I think focusing on the inside ten feet and outside thirty feet makes sense because those are the things that you're you're control in control of directly. Yeah, and just to give a few takeaways, but you know, I want to talk about uh, the impact or imperfections first. Um, I agree with you. There's a there's a lot of variables in play on the putting green with the surface of the putting green. And um, one thing I want to note is putting gets more difficult the later in the day it is. If you're playing in the morning on fresh cut greens that are smooth that haven't had traffic yet, you are going to putt better on a smoother surface. And as the day goes on and there's traffic on the green and the grass is starting to grow, you start to have more imperfections. When you look at PGA Tour stats, and I've put this out there a few times, when you look at PGA Tour players, it doesn't matter what group you look at, whether you look at the top 20 finishers, you look at the entire field, you look at the best putters, you look at the worst putters, you look at the guys highest on the money list, lowest on the money list. It doesn't matter how you group the players. When you look at their putting by time of day, the later in the day it gets, they get significantly worse to the tune of about three tenths of a shot per round, you know, afternoon rounds versus morning rounds. So if you are the kind of player that is, you know, playing after work and you're playing at, you know, evening rounds, you are playing on greens that are much more challenging to play on. Think of it like uh, always hitting approach shots in a 15 mile per hour wind. You're always, you know, struggling in windy conditions. You're getting sort of a perpetual bad weather draw on the punting green when you play later in the day. If you're, if you're a person who plays early in the day, um, putting is going to be a little bit easier for you. Your numbers are going to be a little bit higher. So for those out there that are tracking your stats at a shot level detail, if you are always playing in the evening or you're always playing in the morning, 
you know, kind of mentally look at that and adjust and realize that if you're playing in the morning, um, your numbers are probably artificially inflated a little bit. And if you're playing in the evening, they're probably artificially deflated a little bit. So that's a, you know, a, a point that I want to make. Um, and then one of the takeaways on speed control, you know, for amateur players, let, let's stick with that. In my opinion, from, you know, inside of 10 feet, maybe I could, I could be convinced up to 12 feet. We really don't want to leave anything short of the hole. We also don't want to hit anything four feet by. So inside of 10 feet, we want to make sure we're getting the ball to the hole. And from, you know, we'll call it 10 feet to like 16 or 17 feet. It's kind of a gray area for amateur players. Can you still make putts in the 10 to 17 foot range? You can. Yeah, absolutely. But where there's an inflection point out there somewhere, um, we could probably argue about it for, for weeks on where that is, but there's an inflection point. And, and I always tell amateurs like outside of between like 14 and 17 feet, depending on what your skill level is, we're just trying to two putt at that point. We're just simply trying to leave the ball around the hole and have our proximity around the hole. We're just trying to two putt. Um, if it goes in, great. That, that's a bonus, but we're not going to make many putts out there. So we need to eliminate three putts. And the farther away you get from the hole, um, the more you should leave short. On the, at, on the tour level, when you get them out, I think it's about 50 feet, 45, 50 feet, they leave about half their putt short from 45 or 50 feet. Um, and it, so it drives me crazy. Like when I'm playing with guys and somebody, you know, will have a, a 45 or 50 footer and it'll come up four feet short. And of course, someone or the player <laughs> themselves will say, Oh, you got to hit it. And you know, never up, never in, never up, never in. <laughs> and uh, I can, so I do have one stat here that, that's interesting on that from 50 to 60 feet. The top 20 putters on the PGA Tour, the best putters on the PGA Tour from 50 to 60 feet, they leave 30% of their putts outside five feet. So they're lagging one in three outside of five feet. These are the best players on the planet that are the best putters. And when you are that kind of a range as an amateur player, hitting a 50 footer to five feet is really, really well done. I don't care if it's five feet short, five feet long, five feet right, five feet left. You've done a really good job of giving yourself an opportunity to not three putt there. So 50 foot is about the range where there's there's 50% long, 50% short. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's the inflection point is right around there. Yeah, where they... And the farther away they are from the hole, the more that more putts are short. So inside of 10 feet, they don't leave very many short at all. And then the farther you get from the hole, the bigger percentage gets short. And that's just because our, our speed control, our ability to leave the ball in a, a defined area gets larger. Like when you're 100 feet away on a putt, it's hard to leave it in a smaller window. Uh, when you're nine feet away on a putt, you can leave it in a pretty small window, which allows you to get the putt to the hole and get it past the hole, and, and but not eight feet past the hole. Like in, in a situation where you're going to miss, you're going to have a very makeable comebacker when you get past the hole. So certainly <laughs> play early in the morning. That, that's actually, I never, I've literally never thought about that, to be honest. It's fascinating. I mean, it like makes perfect I, sense. And I, I play, I believe our greens have a lot of POA in them, so they definitely get harder as the day goes on and trampled more the ones I play on a lot. So yeah, I teed off early this morning and the, and the ball is rolling a lot better. So I just never really 
thought that it was that if it's a third of a stroke for a PGA Tour player, that that's significant. Yeah, around. it's it's crazy. And I had uh, some really good conversations around this with. Um, do you know? Do you guys know Dr. Brandon Horvath? Do you know him? Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's the. I'm always conversing with him on Twitter. Yes. He's the turf guy, he's right? He's a, a PhD in turf science. He teaches. Yeah, a, we have to have him on oh, the show. I want to learn more about he's turf. He's amazing. Um, he's your I'm guy. I have to message him. And he uh, were, is at, teaches at University of Tennessee, and he has consulted at every, every golf course you can, you can probably name. Really smart guy. And when I looked at this, and I kind of stumbled into looking at putting by time of day, we talked about it and they've done some studies on how much it actually changes. And, and when you introduce more imperfections, it, it just becomes, it introduces more of an element of luck and it makes it more challenging to make putts. So it's, it's fascinating how much of a difference it actually makes. So, and I think the stat on the 50 footers or even, you know, any, anything that's probably outside of 30 feet, you know, if if you're setting yourself up thinking I have to get it to the hole or beyond the hole, well, then you're shifting your dispersion patterns too far past the hole where you're probably going to be leaving yourself too many long putts coming back because having an expectation of making them is unrealistic from those distances. So, if, you, if you're always trying to get it to the hole or past it, maybe a bit too aggressive. So, I, I like the idea of having that circle maybe that imaginary five foot circle around the hole from 50 feet. And if you've gotten it even close to that circle, you're, you're keeping up pace with what the top 20 putters on the PGA tour. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. That's a great stat because I, I, that's maybe something I, I've never thought. I have a lot of proximity data from wedge shots. I'm sure we'll get into that, but I never really thought of those 50 footers that way. I was going to say, if you, if you had two or your longest and shortest putt were eight feet apart, and you're on a you're on a certain pad, and you hit one right next to the hole. It doesn't go in, but it's right next to the hole. It's a tap in, and then you hit the other one eight foot past. What's the what's the hole out rate from eight foot? Fifty uh, percent. Yeah, fifty percent. Okay, so you're losing for a PGA Tour player. So yeah. you're losing 0.5 of a stroke there by using that by overlaying your putting pattern in that manner. Whereas if you hit, if you were accepted that some are going to be short, and so then your shortest is four foot short, and your longest is four foot past, what's the what's the hole out rate from four foot? Ninety percent? Uh no, it's it's a little bit lower than that. I can get there relatively quickly. Eighty-one point six percent overall from four feet short. zero to four feet eleven inches. Okay, so you're losing nineteen point nine point four of a stroke. So you're better. You're you're over point one of a stroke gained better by allowing yourself to leave those. Sure. And those numbers would even be even bigger for a 10 or a 15 handicap because those are PGA Tour standards. Yeah, yeah. so PGA Tour from 50 feet on the PGA Tour, in order for them to hit a lag putt that is break even for strokes gained, they need to hit it to four feet. If they hit it to four wow. feet, it's break even on strokes gained from 50 feet. From 40 feet, it's three feet, two inches. From 60 feet, it's four feet, nine inches. So, and these are PGA Tour quality numbers. So when you have a, a 10 handicap that hits a 60 footer to six feet, they've done extremely, extremely well. And you need to pat yourself on the back for that and not yell at yourself because it came up six feet short. And that's amazing though. So you said 81% from four yeah, feet. That is from so four think feet. Of all the, 
Yeah. Yeah. Think of all the amateurs. Well, most, that miss well, most of the amateurs are most of the amateurs are giving themselves those putts. Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, but think, <laughs> that's good. Good. Ter- that's good. Good territory. But Come on. Think of all the amateurs that miss one of those and and completely berate themselves. Like, like I, that, that's what I played with this weekend. I played with three old codgers who were. Uh, is that that's not derogatory? Is it? I'm not going to get cancelled for that. Um, no, I think that's safe. <laughs> for three old guys who, um, you know, they were just missing the occasional five footer, four footer, and oh my god, they were throwing their putter and everything. And yeah, they, I bet they don't realize that pros miss almost. Yeah, they, they miss footers. a lot. From five feet, it's seventy percent. Um, so here's an an interesting anecdote I got from. And it made more sense to me when I, I I played golf with Mark Brody the other month after we had him on the podcast and I was asking him about putting and I was saying like, well, isn't it, you know, the PGA Tour speeds, you know, the speeds of the greens are much faster than, you know, your local muni course. Like, doesn't it make it, you know, harder for them? Like, isn't there like not an equivalency there? And he's like, well, that, that speed and pureness of their greens allows them to make so many putts inside of 10 feet. And when I thought about it, like when I play in tournaments, when the greens are fast and, and rolling purely, typically I, I, I do feel like I putt better from five, six, seven feet because I know it's going to, I don't have to smash it as hard. Whereas if I'm playing on super slow greens, it, it is more of a challenge. So that was something he said that that didn't hold up because I always just assumed like, oh, well, it's easier to make an eight footer on slow greens than fast ones. And he's like, well, not for a skilled putter. It's actually easier for them to make it on a faster green. The hole has a bigger capture size on, on faster greens because eff- effectively a faster green, the ball is rolling slower. And so, yeah. you know, if it hits the lip and it's rolling slower, it's more likely to go in. But is is it right that it's more sensitive? I think, um, you know, if you say you accidentally added 0.5 of a mile an hour to your stroke, I think the ball goes much farther past the hole then. So there's there's kind of trade-offs in those regards. Yeah, that, I'm assuming because they're removing their speed control is so impeccable. It it. it made more sense to me and and I, I think for people who are putting on slower greens it's probably easier for them to two putt from a, from a further distance versus if they're on lightning greens and then you deal with probably maybe some of those imperfections we're talking about inside of 10 feet anyway i'm veering off topic, no yeah, that's that a really into my head. that's a really good point and when you look at it on the pga tour one of the things that they capture each week is the stimp of of, of the greens and you know you'd, you'd probably want to control for this a little bit but Generically, you you see make rates go down when it when the stimp is slower, so when the speed is slower. But I I would want to dive into that a little bit because I think when the stimp is a little bit slower, they they have more pinnable locations, and you start to see some locations where the pins end up on a little bit more slope, um, and and so they might be slightly more challenging because they have more spots where they can put it when it's stimping a little bit slower. And I, I've always wanted to run a test and I've talked a little bit with Brandon Horvath about this, where you have something that is stimping at, you know, we'll call it nine versus 11 and a half, but they're both really, really smooth. Like they're super smooth and there's not a lot of imp- imperfections in, in the thing, in the green that's rolling at nine, it's rolling very, very smooth. It's just rolling slower. And I, I'm curious to see what that would do to putting. Um, I, I don't know if it's the slowness, if it's the, uh, the green is slower. So they put it on locations that have more slope 
or when the green is slower, it's because of maybe the type of grass and it has a little bit more imperfections in it that when you introduce imperfections, it makes it more random, which is going to make, make rates go down. But hopefully that all makes sense. This is why I'm so happy I'm not in the statistics field. I would My <laughs> brain would explode. That's a lot on putting. I'd like to – let's maybe move on to – I mean, the main takeaway I always think about as putting is everyone looking to get better – Work on those putts you have a chance to make inside of 10 feet and, and work certainly on speed control on those lag putts and, and think about some of those things that Lou said about proximity and don't be so hard on yourself. Um, let's talk about wedge play around the greens, whether it's bunkers, you know, chip shots, pitch shots. I don't know how hard this is for you to recall some of this information, but I think a lot of golfers and Probably myself included, because if if I had to pick one part of the game that is a is my poorest play, is certainly the the around the green with with my wedge. I'm just not as skilled there. Really, I'm surprised by yeah. that. Yeah, well, I think it's because you know a lot of things that work for me in other parts of the game, how I deliver the golf club, the de-lofting, a lot of in to out stuff makes it a little bit more challenging for me to be a, a better wedge player. I'm not horrible. I'm decent. But what I want to ask you and, and, and to help me and everyone else understand is what are reasonable outcomes for golfers with a wedge in their hand around the green, whether it's in the bunker, from the rough, the fairway, you know, those shorter pitch and chip shots. Like, are there any top level stats you can share with us from the PGA Tour or, or other areas of the game you've collected with other amateurs? Like, what pops out in your head when I say that? Well, I'm going to I'm gonna quiz you guys. I'm going to see how good you are at guessing this number. Uh, so, you typical PGA Tour pro and you put them in the rough 20 yards from the hole. Uh, and they have not not every twenty yard shot is created equal. Obviously, there's a, a lot of differences. And in this situation, they have at least ten yards of green to work with. So they're twenty yards. So they're not short. They're not short sided. Um, they're twenty yards from the hole. They have at least ten yards of green to work with. What percentage of their shots will finish outside of eight feet? Eight feet. I, I didn't. I didn't say three. I didn't say four. I didn't, I didn't say five. I said eight. What percentage uh-huh. of their shots will finish outside of eight feet? When you're hiring for your small business like I have to, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and free. And you can always support us by checking them out at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just another job board. It is a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. I know a ton of people who are using it for multiple reasons, and LinkedIn has absolutely exploded over the last few years. There's wonderful content on business ideas, but more importantly, it gives you access to professionals that you can't find anywhere else. Anyone who runs a small business knows that hiring is easy when you can get that quality candidate. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate from LinkedIn Jobs within 24 hours. LinkedIn knows that people like me and other small businesses like Adam or maybe you are wearing so many hats and you might not have the time or resources to hire. It's not like all of us can have our own HR department. That's why there are over 2.5 million small businesses using LinkedIn for hiring. If you want to give it a shot and post your job for free, go to linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
I'm going to say like 58. That's just my guess. Well, if you think it like if you think it like an amateur, you'd say zero, zero, right? Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> they they hit them all to two feet. It's it's happening. Yeah, but uh, knowing what the little that I know about this, I would say yeah, about fifty percent are outside. It's exactly fifty percent. Yeah. Okay. Fifty percent. So you guys are both really close. So that so that circle, you know, thinking about that circle you were talking about with the lag putts from from a twenty yard chip pitch shot, whatever technique you want to play. Now you've got that eight foot circle as the line in the sand with the fifty percent. Sure, yeah. For a tour player, for a tour player, for a wow. PGA tour player, so. <laughs> who are all—I don't care how bad the work, how how poor of a wedge player, one hundred sixtieth, you know, in that ranking is. If you played with them any day, you'd be blown away by their wedge play. They're all phenomenal wedge players. They are incredible. They're incredible at every part of the game. They're so good at that. That's what always blows me away with. I've played with a few people who are borderline like mini tour players and I watch them with the wedge in their hand. I'm just like, I can't do that. And they're probably not even up to snuff. Yeah, yeah. They are extremely, extremely talented. So, you know, when you you guys are both, you know, you probably cheated a little bit. Didn't cheat, but you probably knew that this was going to lean towards a much higher number. But if you were to ask that in your regular group, and I've done it before, uh, I have a 80%. Small, the numbers you get are really small. So they'll say, oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to hit 90% of their shots inside of eight feet. Like, they they might leave ten percent outside of outside of eight feet. I've had some guys say less than that. So that you know, one of the reasons I like to put all of those manager expectation stats out there is to to help people to understand what's going on at the highest levels. And even though we're never going to play at that level, I think it can help us to understand what good is and what bad is. And I, I think one of the important part of manager expectations. The most important part of manager expectations is that I've worked with amateur players before, and they will think that they are really poor at a given category. Uh, they'll think that they're horrible at 100-yard wedge shots. They think everything from 100 yards in the fairway should be inside of 12 feet, um, and they get mad and upset when they don't hit it inside of 12 feet. And I've seen and I've talked to players before. I think what happens with some players is when they start to beat themselves up over that, where it's completely unrealistic for them to expect to hit every shot that close from 100 yards, when they start to beat themselves up, uh, they start to actually perform worse. They start to get Right. They start to get nervous about a given shot. They, they start to perform differently in that situation. And because they have unrealistic expectations, they actually end up making them, themselves worse in that category or, or that shot or whatever it happens to be. And I think understanding what good is can really help you to avoid ever being in that situation where you are actually playing really well. You're, you're doing great. Uh, you're performing at your ability or above, and you don't have to worry about that part of the game. You don't have to stress over it, which I think bleeds into not only that facet of your game, but the rest of your game. I, I see it. Yeah, I see it all. I mean, it, it was a huge struggle for me. I still struggle with it. I'm never going to be perfect at it, but I think there's always two th- 
takeaways I always have with managing expectations, and I'm glad we bring up these tour stats, is if you don't know what a good shot is, you can make two mistakes. You can make a strategic mistake with it, with your target and club selection. If you think like, oh, I've got to hit this inside of 10 feet, well, then you might be choosing a club and a, and a target that's way too aggressive, leading to a much bigger mistake. And then secondly, what you said, which I think is the most important piece of the puzzle, is that you're putting yourself in a negative frame of mind. So, A, you're not enjoying yourself, which is a huge problem because what's the whole point of playing golf if you're just going to be upset with every shot you hit? And secondly, that's going to put you in a negative frame of mind. And I, as, as we all know, that that's that's hard to play better golf when you're when you're soured on your own game. And like you said, a lot of people sour on their own games. And I tell this to players all the time. With I played with a guy this morning who thought he was having a bad round. And I'm like, I'm like, you're not. I think you're actually playing quite well. I think you're hitting good shots. And he's like, no, nah, I should be doing better. I'm like, and and that's, you know, one of the, unfortunately, one of the, I think the problems of watching tour players on TV is that it it, it sets us up for failure in the expectations category. Yeah, for sure. I'm, all right. I want to quiz you guys again because it's really fun. Yeah, keep going. Um, what is the average proximity uh, for a the average tour player from 25 yards in the fairway? Average proximity, 25 yards Adam, in the you, fairway. You, you can start on this one, Adam. <laughs> I'll go with eight eight feet again. It's a little bit longer, but it's in the fairway. So, Yeah, I think, well, for 20, you said 25 yards 25 in the fairway? Yards you said? in the fairway, yep. Uh, I'll say nine and a half feet. It's nine feet, seven inches. I feel like you might be uh, able to see my screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nine feet, seven inches from 25 yards. Like I understand there's short game shots and, and there's there's a lot of factors in play, but even when I break it down and I find the easy 25 yard shots where they have a lot of green to work with, it doesn't improve that much. And I, I just um I I play and I've seen so many amateur players, and I was guilty of it in the past myself, where I would be a hundred yards, or I'd be 25 yards. I'd come up short um, and I'd have a 25 yard shot from a fairway, perfect lie, plenty of green to work with. And I'd hit it to eight or nine feet. And I would be upset that I didn't get it closer. And I would beat myself up a little bit about it, which doesn't help you to play well. And it would bleed over into my game. And, and I'm sure I cost myself countless shots through the years by having unreasonable expectations getting down on myself for not quote unquote executing and then letting that influence my game for the rest of the day. That's definitely how it helped me. I mean, expectation management, the more I learned about these stats and I had to learn it myself through asking questions, you know, to to pupils, I would say to them, how many, how many times do you think a pro is going to hit this fairway? And I outline the fairway for them and you know, they'd say inevitably 90% of the time, I'd say, how, what about Tiger Woods when he was in his prime? Oh, 95, 98% of the time. And they're like, nope, it was about 55% of the time. And so through learning about this stuff, you know, it's, it starts to help you as a coach or help, help me as a coach. You know, I, I would be on the course and if I hit a bad shot now, I'm not going to start tinkering with my swing. I'm just going to, I'm more likely to just accept that this 
is an inevitable part of the game. I'm not going to get as angry about the shot. And that that was a big thing for me. I would lose so many shots on the golf course just from getting angry and then letting the, it ruin the rest of my game. And then there's also the strategy part, you know, understanding, and I'm sure we'll go into this, into shot dispersion, shot circles, understanding that how big those shot circles are so that you can pick a better strategy for the the shot in front of you. Here's a question for you, Lou. Is there much of a difference? I'd assume it'd be a smaller difference for tour players versus amateurs, but talk a little bit about shorts. Do you have stats on like when players are short-sided versus when they have more green to work with? My assumption is that when a 15 handicap short-sides themselves, it's going to be much more penalizing to their score on that hole versus a tour player because as we know, a tour players are are wizards with wedges in their hand and they're able to hit, add more loft, play out of tougher lies. But have you seen anything at the tour level that indicates like a much bigger penalty, I guess, in proximity to the hole for being short-sided or not being short-sided? Do you, do you have anything on oh, that? Yeah, it is a... It, it is a remarkable penalty. I know what I want. I want you to right. say that because yeah. it leads to a lot of different other points with strategy right. and expectation so management. But a, what do you got? It's a huge golf ultimately comes down to a couple of things. A couple of things that are really important. One, keep the ball in play. Like when you start racking up penalty strokes, scores go way up. And then two, minimize how often you short side yourself, which is really what strategy comes down to is we don't want to completely eliminate short-sighting ourselves. And, and I'll use a, an extreme example. Let's say every time you play a hole, uh, the pin is always way over on the left. It's three yards from the left edge. And you never want to short-side it because it's so close. And so you aim 40 yards right of the pin. Like you're going you're gonna to miss it way in the right. You're never going to short-side it. You're going to hit the green some of the time when you, you know, hit a pole. And you're never going to short-side it. That's a ridiculous example. You're being far too conservative and your scores are not going to, uh, are not going to be as good as they can be. Um, if you fire directly at that pin, it's so close to the edge that you're going to hit way more shots short-sided, which is going to make it very difficult to get up and down. And we'll go through those numbers in a second. So what strategy is ultimately trying to do is it's trying to find that sweet spot between firing right at the pin and, and firing you know, at a target that's 40 yards right of the pin so you never short side it. You're trying to find that sweet spot somewhere in the middle where you give yourself enough makeable putts, you, you short side it a little bit because if you're never short siding it, you're being far too conservative. So we have to find that mathematical sweet spot so that you can optimize your scoring. And that's really what it comes down to. But here's why short-siding it is generally pretty bad. We'll just use a 14 to 15-yard shot. So we'll call it a 14-yard shot. The way that I look at short-siding it is I have a green to work with ratio. And basically what that is, is of the distance you have to the hole, what percentage of it is green? So let's say you're 10 yards from the hole. And you're just off the green. You have nine yards of green to work with. Uh, your green to work with ratio there would be 90%. So 10 yards away, nine yards of it is green. 90% of that is green. It's a lot of green to work with. If you're 10 yards from the hole and you only have three yards of green to work with, you only have a 30% ratio right there. Not a lot of green to work with. It's really challenging. 
The inflection point of where it starts to get challenging is about 50%. So if you have an eight yard shot and the pin is four yards on, yeah, you're going to start to notice that. If you have an eight yard shot and the pin is three yards on, you're really starting to notice that now. And so that's kind of the inflection point. So let's look at the 14 yard shot. When you have less than 30%, so 30% or less green to work with, your average proximity is 14.1 feet, which is 1.76 putts from 14.1 feet for a tour pro. If you have a ton of green to work with, 80%, at least 80% from 14 yards. So there's plenty of green in front of you, 11 yards of green, roughly. Your average proximity is 7.2 feet, which is 1.45 putts to hold out. So it's 1.76 when you're short-sided, 1.45 when you're long-sided. So it's a third of a stroke. It's a third of a stroke. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a huge for, for, And that's for a tour player, for a again, tour who, player. Is, who is the most optimized golfer right. on the planet. Now show me a 20 handicap. For a tour player. <laughs> you know, and, th- and this is, um, it gets even worse than that, depending on the situation. So when I work with a, a player and we're mapping out golf courses, one of the things that we're, we're looking at and we're really trying to understand is what the slope of the green is around the edge of the green. That makes a huge impact on um, how difficult um, a shot is going to be if you happen to short side it right there. When the green is running away from you, it makes it significantly more difficult. And as golf, as golfers, you know that, right? You understand that when you, when you miss a green and you have a pin that's maybe cut four or five from the edge and you have a, a 10 yard shot, 12 yard shot, and that green is running away from you, that is a much, much harder shot than if that green is you're pitching it into an uphill. It's a much more challenging shot when it's downhill. That's the one thing we're really paying attention to when we're mapping out a golf course before we get there is understanding that. The other thing that's really important when you're playing and it helps you to pick targets is you also want to you want to understand what the wind direction is. And if it's a day where it's calm and it doesn't really matter, we don't care about it. But if the wind is blowing, you know, five, seven miles an hour or more than that, you really want to pay attention to if I short side it, will I be downwind if I short side it? That makes a huge difference as well. Even though it's only a 10, 12, 20 yard shot, that makes a huge impact as well. And when you have a situation where if you short side it there, the green is running away from you and it's downwind. Those are those are the ones you see on TV where they where they say, you know, he's going to be happy to have 20 feet coming back here. And so those are the ones that are huge, huge, you know, red lights, caution, be careful, uh, don't short side it here because if you short side it, your likelihood of getting up and down is is probably you having to make a, a 15 to 20 footer. So for so for a tour player, it, using that assumption of the, what you define as short side themselves, they're only parring at 25% of the time. Is that correct with the 1.76? Uh, yeah, roughly. Yeah, you can, something yeah, like you that. can think about it. Yeah, like that. That's fair. So they're, they're kind of like resigning themselves to if they are aggressive with their target and they do short side themselves, assuming that, you know, sometimes you just hit a bad shot and you short side yourself. It's not a strategic mistake. It's just a variance of, of your, of the outcome of your shots. But it, if it's costing a tour player, almost a shot, uh, I don't think you have stats on a 10, 15, 20 handicap with you, but I, I imagine it's going to be more than that on average. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So it, it, it's something 
you know, maybe we'll we'll shelve, you know, full iron shots for another episode because we're getting so much good info here. But I think one of also the takeaways strategically, I don't want to get into approach shots, but let's think about if if a recreational golfer is short-sided. Let's say you are in that situation where the green is running away from you and you don't have much green to work with. It's not a reasonable expectation to go in there thinking you're going to save par. And I think what happens to some golfers, myself included at times, is you get a little too cute with that wedge shot trying to thread the needle and just get it on the green. So now you're bringing in that shot, which we all hate, <laughs> which is when you you know decel, flub it a little bit and you are hitting the next shot from the rough. Or let's say you, your technique just falls apart and you blade it through the green. So it's it's almost one of those jail situations similar to being in the trees where like if you make a bogey from there or you're, you're there, it's like starting to think, well, if I make a bogey, I'm almost keeping pace with tour players. Is that That's not crazy to say based on what you just told me. Yeah, I, that's, I think it's a great way to think of it. And when you find yourself in that situation, you you don't want to chip twice. You know, chipping twice is something we want to avoid at all costs, basically. And so if that means you have to make sure that you fly the ball past the hole and you've you've come to grips with the fact that you're going to have 20 feet coming back for par, that is what you need to do so that you don't chip it twice. Chipping it twice is is never good. Tour player to 15 handicap, we, we want to avoid those. But before we get ourselves in that situation where we are in jail 18 yards from the hole, We want to take that into account when we're picking our targets. So we want to understand how bad will it be if I short side myself here? How far away is the pin from the edge? Which way is the wind blowing if I short side it? What is the slope of the green if I happen to short side it? What's the elevation change between the green and the surrounding area? The inflection point is is about two feet. So if the surrounding area is two feet below or two feet above the level of the green, it starts to get harder which was interesting to me. I always thought that uh, being above the green would make it easier. I don't know why I thought that, but it it, it gets harder, um, just like being really below the green. So when you have a green- really? where, that, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, was shocked that's by good. that. <laughs> I'm I, like, I is he saying what I think you know, he's yeah, saying? <laughs> I, never, I never thought that. I never realized that was the case, but it's absolutely the case. So if you have a, uh, you know, uh, one of those punch bowl type of green situations where it's elevated around the green, um, being three or four feet above the level of the green is just as difficult as being four feet below the level of the green, which the I only was, reason I could think of that is that when, when the green is higher than you, usually you're on an upslope and those could be easier to get into the ball if it's in deep rough and also to pop the ball up higher whereas if the green is below you normally you're on a down slope right and so that could be that's the only reason i could think of that but yeah that could yeah that could, that could be so i t- i take all of those into account and elevation is also an important part of the equation to to understand how dangerous is it going to be or how difficult is it going to be if i short sighted here and i'm trying to minimize short sighting it as much as i possibly is there anything else around the greens i'd love to talk about bunker play as well but like is is anything else i know you maybe have a few slides in front of you some other kernels some stats you can give people to i really want people to just kind of breathe a sigh of relief i think because when we do step up to these wedge shots around the green 
if if you are thinking that success is three feet from the hole, you might try and pull off shots that are a little too difficult for your skill level. You're, there's too much pressure on yourself. Um, so I don't want people to think like, oh, you just want to land the ball 50 feet from the hole, but at least have a reasonable expectation of just getting the ball on the putting surface that 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 is kind of a, a huge hurdle for a lot of golfers avoiding that double chip situation. But a lot of this stuff to me is like breathing a sigh of relief. So is there any other kernels you yeah, can share you, with I'll us? I'll give you just one, sir, from 25 yards in the rough, which is a, a relatively typical shot for an amateur player. When we, sure. when we miss greens, we tend to miss greens a little bit bigger. So 25 yards in the rough, the average proximity for a tour player is 14 and a half feet. 14 and a half feet from 25 yards in the rough. And they miss the green 16% of the time from 25 yards in the rough. So, uh, and some people will push back and say they're playing much more challenging rough than, than we are. And some weeks it's true, but a lot of weeks it's not. Yeah, I mean, the rough on most tour stops isn't insane. No, not at all. Not at all. And I've played at plenty of tracks where the rough is worse than what they play on tour because they only cut it twice a week. And if you happen to catch it, like the days that I play, it's been three days since they've cut and it's, you know, it's a solid three and a half inches and it's pretty thick. So, you know, these numbers do apply to the everyday, you know, weekend warrior like me. So again, from 25 yards in the rough, 14 and a half feet. So just imagine a 14 and a half foot circle around the hole, right? That's, that's a- Wait, isn't that, isn't that equivalent to what a tour player will hit from like a hundred yards in the fairway? Is that uh, is that the similar proximity, no. or is that too too tight? Yeah, that's that's too tight. So what is it from, twenty feet from a hundred yards in the fairway? Average proximity is eighteen and a half feet. Eighteen and a half. Okay, but it's not it's not like that. So twenty five yards in the rough versus a hundred yards in the fairway is four feet of proximity, which I know is not nothing. It's but yeah, fourteen and a half feet is a lot bigger big. than I would have expected. Yeah. That's a, that's a that's a huge circle. Yeah. So imagine you know fifteen feet uh, all around the hole. We'll just say it's fifteen feet. So it's a thirty foot wide circle. Imagine painting out a thirty foot wide circle around the hole from twenty, <laughs> and then saying if you finish inside that giant circle you've done, you know, better than what average tour proximity is. How many players just got off the golf course today (laughs) (laughs) kicking themselves for leaving it, you know, 10 feet from the hole from that yardage and and from from that proximity was it like a 20 percent at best make rate putting yeah for sure something like that absolutely and for a tour player for a tour player yeah for a tour player you got anything on bunker play? My my least favorite part of golf. I'm just uh, you know the only that, thing that I'll, a... I'll share on bunker play. You know we could probably talk about that uh, quite a bit. So one bunkers are a penalty. You'll see sometimes on Twitter where they'll say bunkers are just so easy for tour pros. And no, they're not. Um, they're they're challenging, and and hitting it into a bunker is a penalty. You will score higher when you hit it into a bunker. I will say that. When you look at the data on bunker play, those 40 to 50 yard bunker shots become incredibly difficult for tour players. Like you you see this huge spike in how challenging it is to play a bunker shot in that range. And so when you come across situations where, you know, maybe it's a, a, a gettable par four or it's a par, par five that you, you can't quite get to, you can maybe get it 40, 50 yards short. And there's a bunker that you could end up in 40, 50, 50 yards away. You need to, you know, as an amateur player, 
you know, you need to, you know, really kind of think through those because they can be really challenging. I think that's the hardest shot in golf. Like that shot, like legitimately gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like I don't want to be in a bunker from 50 yards away. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there. I don't want to be in a bunker from five yards away, much less 50. <laughs> well, do you have anything like what are reasonable outcomes from a tour player from like a greenside bunker? Do you have any like of those uh, cool dispersion windows for us? Uh, I do. I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to find that one. All right, so on bunker play. So let's look at um, how about a 15-yard bunker shot? Relatively common. 15-yard bunker shot, the average proximity is 11 feet from 15 yards. Is that closer than from the rough? um, It is not closer than from the rough. So it's from 15 yards in the rough, it's 10 feet, 3 inches. So that myth of I'd rather be in the bunker than in the rough. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It's a bunker play is going to uh, be a little bit more challenging right around the green. When you start to get a certain distance away, they start to equalize a little bit more. But yeah, up close, being in the bunker is generally a a worse predicament for a tour player. You know, that's not always the case. Are are there some situations where you know being in the rough around the green is incredibly challenging based on the thickness of the rough, the type of grass, the way the, you know, just the way the course is set up. Sure. Absolutely. And sometimes being in the bunker is preferable, but when I, when I'm looking at golf courses and mapping them out with players, I'm, I'm interested in bunkers and where they are because it's generally more challenging. A lot of bunkers are set four to six feet below the level of the green, which that elevation change helps to make it a little bit more challenging. The other thing that I really pay attention to on bunkers, and you know, I almost wish that they had you know topography green books for bunkers, is there are think of some of the courses that you've played. There are some bunkers that you will see, and it's gonna be hard for the listeners to see this. I'm gonna make some hand motions for you too. Uh, so <laughs> let's imagine a green, you know, just imagine a green and imagine a bunker next to a green. There's some bunkers where the face of the bunker. Uh, is relatively steeper. It's it's steeper and it gets down to the bottom of the bunker relatively quick with a steep face. And then the rest of the bunker is sort of high in the back away from the green and it slopes down. And there's a lot of area of the bunker that's a downslope. And those are significantly more challenging. It's it's like it, you know any other golf uh, shot in golf. When you end up on a downslope, it makes it generally tougher to hit that shot. And so when I'm when I'm understanding a golf course and I'm mapping it out and I'm trying to identify how much of a how much respect, I'll call it that, that I want to pay to a bunker, that's one of the things that I'm looking at is is that the kind of bunker that's going to have a lot of downslope on it? And if it is, I want to avoid that one even more than a typical quote-unquote bunker. Hopefully that makes sense the way I described it. Yeah. I mean, I, I play on a golf course that has a lot of those bunkers or you know, when I'm thinking about certain holes uh, on my home course, like the third hole uh, um, just pops to mind. Like I know if I go long, I have I'm I'm in that bunker short sided with a downslope just totally dead right. like I'm I'm hoping you know bogey's like I I'm hoping to escape with the bogey at that point so I think this is you know perhaps a little bit more advanced strategy because of my playing level but like I'm adjusting based on that because I know if I miss it short of the green it's just a relatively flat easy 
chip. So, you know, if you're thinking in terms of strokes gained, <laughs> if I miss long, my strokes gained is losing way more than if I went short. So, I'm adjusting no matter where the pin is. I'm always making sure that I don't want a scenario where I'm going over that green because that bunker is just total death. And I guess that depends on the style of golf courses people play. Sometimes a lot of courses, I think, feature bunkers short of the green that are harder to get out of because the architect knows that's where most golfers are missing their shots. So, I mean, that's the beauty of golf is that each track we play is different. So, you got to think about these things and and where where is the biggest penalty for missing the green? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my mentality, if I get in any bunker, and again, I'm not the best bunker player in the world, but as a scratch golfer, my mentality is get the ball on the putting surface. That's all I'm thinking. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> Cuz I I'm just I'm just really I'm not that great of a bunker player and I don't have expectations of of getting it even in the window you're talking about. I'm just really trying to avoid a massive mistake whether it's me chunking it or blading it. I just want to get it on the putting surface. And if I make a par putt, fine. If I two putt for bogey, I, I've taken my medicine and I moved on. Yeah, I, I you know I have a question for Adam on that. So I'm really curious as a swing coach here to to get your thoughts on this. There was a, a, a swing coach that I knew back in the day, and I think it's fair to say that amateurs overall they really struggle from bunkers, and the higher the handicap, the bigger the struggle uh, from what I've seen. And he always taught people. To, to learn a 10-yard bunker shot. So he wanted them to be able to fly the ball 10 yards out of the bunker, and that was it. And his reasoning, uh, and it, it kind of makes sense to me, um, but his reasoning was there's a lot of greenside bunkers you're going to get into, and if you can carry the ball 10 yards roughly, you're going to get out of the bunker and onto the green. So he kind of taught a method where he just had a player learn a single shot from the bunker. This is obviously geared towards, you know, the weekend warriors at a certain handicap or above, but he he wanted them to learn just a 10-yard bunker shot and aim it kind of towards the pin or, you know, on the green, the shortest path from where you are in the bunker to the green and make sure you just get it on the green and, and take a, a 20 to 40 foot putt, uh, but make sure you're putting. So that's what, you know, he taught. That was his, his theory on it. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. The, what type of method did he teach? Was it, because I, I know there's kind of, uh, gone in two separate ways at the moment. There's the old method of really opening the face wide open, using a lot of speed, the pro method, basically. And then you've got more the easy method now. Square so beyond, yeah, so if, without getting into the swing mechanic portion of that question, which I am not qualified to talk about, it was more of that was his concept of all I want you to do is be able to hit a 10-yard bunker shot. Like every bunker shot you hit for the rest of your life is a 10-yard bunker shot. And he wanted them just to get comfortable with taking it to a certain point, accelerating enough, whatever method they employed, he wanted them to be able to just repeat, repeatedly carry the ball 10 yards out of the bunker just to get it on the green. That's all that he cared that's about. Honestly, like that's literally how I approach my bunker. Really? <laughs> honestly, yeah. I'm... It... it I don't want to like jinx myself here, but that that's really the only shot on the course where I can like conceivably like really like be like, oh no, like where I can have a bad result. So that honestly, like when I'm working on, on bunker play, I, I'm literally focusing on one technique, one shot, and maybe I can vary it a little bit based on how far I want it to go. But 
I'm not getting too fancy with it. I'm just trying to get the ball on the putting surface. If I'm 20 feet away, fine. If I'm 10 feet away, fine. I just don't want to shoot myself in the foot. And maybe that's a little too conservative for my level of play, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> and that's what I focus on is just being able to repeat that one technique I'm comfortable with. I, I like that. I, I love that. I, I need to work on my technique a little bit more. There. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things where, I, I, like I said before, I, I realize things that make me, I think the strength of my game is iron play and now my, my driver, thankfully. But things that work for me with my iron play make bunker play harder for me. I am de-lofting it so much that I'm not engaging the bounce as much. My angle of attack is so shallow on most shots that I, I struggle with coming in too shallow. Maybe sometimes I'll even blade it. So, it's just not a comfortable technique for me. And so, I approach it as like, I'm not Seve Ballesteros out of the bunker. I'm I'm just trying, like like I said, I, I'm, I'm literally just trying to get the ball on the putting surface most of the time. That's And I'm happy with it. So do you do you think you consciously end up picking more conservative targets when there's bunkers in play because of how you approach bunker play? No, no, no. It doesn't even like I actually don't. I think because my strategy is good enough with my approach shot and I'm a skilled enough iron player. Like I'm actually not in the bunker all that. Like there's many rounds I go without being in a bunker. I know that might sound crazy, but I'm just not in them that much. I lose my strokes elsewhere, trust me. But yeah, it's 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 I, I like what you just said, that that the tenure. I think a lot of players could do really well if, not to get into the can of worms, what Adam was alluding to is like what technique is better. I think that depends on the player, but just the philosophy of can I have a technique? And I even say this with wedge play in the rough. Can I rely on a technique that I know is gonna get the ball on the putting surface? Because every stat you've mentioned thus far tells me that from 15 to 25 yards around the green, it's not a reasonable expectation to be landing the ball inside of eight to 10 feet anyway. And we're, you know, we're thinking about how can a 20 or 10 handicap reduce strokes from their gain is getting it on the putting surface with a reasonable thing and avoiding two chips. So that certainly translates to bunker play for me as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree completely. Where, where's the crossover then? So I know short-siding yourself is bad. If you've got a 15-yard short-sighted shot, where's the crossover where or what length of shot would be the equivalent that's not short-sighted? Does that make sense? I could have worded that better, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> is, is a 30-yard not short-sighted shot easier than a 10-yard short-sighted shot? Okay. All right. I see where you're coming from. That's so I have stats right in front of me on that. So here it's really interesting. So 30, what we'll do, I have 26 yards in front of me right here. So a 26 yard shot that has plenty of green to work with, you are going to hit it to 12.2 feet. A 12 yard shot with no green to work with, you're going to hit it to 12.4 feet. So, you know, it, it's being short-sighted is a very, very challenging proposition. So we want to minimize how often we short side ourselves. We don't want to eliminate it because if we eliminate it, we are being far too conservative. We want to, uh, we want to minimize it and pay special attention to situations where the green would be running away from us. We'd be downwind, there's a big elevation change and factor that in a little bit more to you know, how less desirable it would be in that situation to be short-sighted. 
Hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, but I, my memory uh, lost it while you were actually saying it. So it's 24 yards, a 24-yard not short-sighted shot. Yeah, 26. Versus... Yeah, 20, uh, 26. 26 yards, not 26 yards, not, you know, you have plenty of green to work with. 26 yards with a ton of green to work with, the average proximity is 12.2 feet. Versus 12, 12 yards 12. with not a lot of green to work with is so 12.4 12, 12. feet. They're really so similar. double. Yeah, it's so more, it's than, more double. than double. Yeah, it's more than double. Yep. yep. And that's a it's pretty pretty decent rule of thumb there. Um, you know, there's obviously so many variables in all of these things, but however you look at it, when you don't have a lot of green to work with, it's a challenging shot versus when you have a lot of green to work with. And we as a as three golfers, we know that. When you have a 15-yard little chip shot and you are one foot off the edge of the green and the, the pin is 15 yards away, that is so much different than being 15 yards away and you have 11 yards of rough and four yards of green. Like Those are just miles apart with how difficult they are. So it's not just all proximity. It's where you are that matters as well. Then. 100%. Yeah, for sure. So we are way past our normal time limit, which is totally okay. We have engaged listeners who I, I think like to like our in-depth conversations. And I came into this thinking we'd be talking about all parts of the game. And that was naive, a naive assumption because Lou has so much good information. So why don't we like cut this episode off here where I think we've got some good information on putting and greenside wedge play. <laughs> And then in another episode, and hopefully in the not too distant future, we're going to maybe get into those short wedge shots and approach play because we could certainly do a whole episode of that and, and manage people's expectations there. Is that is that a, is that a good plan, guys? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I think we could dedicate two episodes to approach play. Yeah, let's make it let's make it a series, just like we're doing with Woody Lashin on our. Uh, on our club fitting knowledge. So, you know, we'd love to have you back for more of these because this is, it's just such an important topic. And I've, I've gotten a lot of comments from listeners of the show. Whenever we talk about expectations, it's helping people. So I want to keep doing this stuff. Adam, is there any, anything else that you were wanting to ask Lou about these parts of the game? We could always revisit it, but was there something else that was hanging on the tip of your tongue? No, all my questions were actually dedicated more towards the long game. So this was very informative, <laughs> very informative so, for me, but awesome. it's not disappointing though, Lou. Don't worry about that. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. <laughs> you no, you did, you did so well. <laughs> You did so well that we couldn't even get like past like what I thought was just going to be like the intro to the episode. That is such a polite way to say you are a long-winded fool that talks too much. <laughs> no, no, no way. So no way. I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't have invited you back on. Yeah, already. I'd love to come back on. I know you put out a tweet um, asking questions for listeners, um, and I don't know if you wanted to tackle those in the in the next episode, which is totally cool, but. I kind of looked through some of them. There look like some neat ones. So we can tackle that later um, in a later episode, but I definitely want to want to uh, get through a couple of those at least. And I'm sure you have some that you liked from what was asked. Yeah. Let's make it a whole series. I'm, I'm in. All right. Well, there you have it. We have an upcoming Managing Air Expectations series with Lou Stagner. Lou, thanks so much for doing this. We gave you some plugs earlier, but tell everyone where they could find your stuff. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lou Stagner on Twitter and also uh, part of a decade with Scott Fawcett, which is playing lesson.com. And don't forget your podcast on oh, our podcast. Uh, 
we, we had a little bit of a dust up episode this week around divots and should you get relief from divots. So I think those guys are angry at me because um, we, we fall on different <laughs> sides of the fence there. But yeah, Hack It Out Golf Podcast. So John, we have to get you on there. Adam, we had you on there a few months ago. So Pleasure. Um, we'll definitely have to do a little crossover. Like Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days, which... I don't know if you get that one, John. I think you may be too young for that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I never watched Happy Days, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. I was more of a Simpsons era. That was my first TV obsession at, at five. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I just dated myself by saying that. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. So, I think we'll wrap it up there. We'll we'll turn this into a series to help everyone manage their expectations. Thanks again for everyone's support of the show. Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. John, where can they find you? And you can find me at Practical-Golf.com. Thanks for everyone's support again. We appreciate it. And we will see you next week with a new episode.